You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money. In this episode, there's a vacancy at the UN. Head of our international program, Lisa Sharland, unpacks the unexpected departure of the United States UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. Cyber attacks by the Russian state. Danielle and Bart from our cyber team ask why Australia chooses to test their attribution policy on Russia. And later on in the show, Jackie spoke with Elizabeth Blackney, the Executive Director of the People's Portfolio and Informal Advisor to Nobel Peace Prize Laureate, Dr. Dennis McQuaggie. But first up, Maddie talks to Dr. Jonathan Quick, author of The End of Epidemics, who's on a mission to protect humanity from deadly infectious disease outbreaks and epidemics. So you're here in Australia for um, a book tour. You've just released a new book, which is absolutely fascinating. What really inspired you to write this book, Jono? It was really catalyzed by what happened in the fall of uh, 2014, when after four months of kind of global denial over the Ebola outbreak there, there was a lot of attention and and almost a pylon of, of, of support um, as one local colleague called it, the uh, overzealous helpers. <laughs> and I kind of stepped back having uh, seen the early days of AIDS and what had happened with uh, bird flu and, and other epidemics and asked myself, what, where will we be four years from now? And typically we go from a cycle of panic to neglect. Hmm. And um, so I, I wanted to write a book that would lay out for, for, for average readers. This is not a science book. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of science in it, but it's written for, for like the me. everyday readers yeah, and, and policymakers who are not uh, health people to lay out what's at stake for humanity, w- mm-hmm. what are the threats, and what we can do to, to make the world safer and to make it safer for ourselves and, and, and our children and our grandchildren. Well, it's interesting because one of my roles here at ASPE is I edit a national security blog every week. And one of the sections is called First Responder. And we deal with these sorts of disaster resilience, but also like infectious diseases. And I've just been noticing that a lot of stories recently um, have come up on this topic. You know, I think it was just this week um, I was editing one. There's been a deadly outbreak of malaria in Lombok in Indonesia. And I think also the UN World Health Organization, they've sort of released a report where they're warning that con- countries aren't doing enough to, term- um, to sort of fight against tuberculosis. I feel personally that I'm a little bit guilty of this myself, but why do you think people have been sort of slow to get on board um, with, you know, looking at infectious diseases through the lens of kind of national security? Well, in the cycle of, of panic and, and, and neglect, when it's, when it's right in front of you and it has a big horror uh, factor, then there's a lot of attention. But then um, people, when people, the farther away it is and in time and space, uh, the more people kind of retreat into themselves. Some of it is just denial. We don't want to think about our own mortality. Putting our head in the sands a little bit. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it is distraction. Other things going on that take the attention. And um, for political leaders and business leaders and even the scientific community, it's in some ways the economics and politics of now, whatever's grabbing today's attention. Mm. So, yeah, that's probably why we see more in the news in terms of like CT and that sort of thing, rather than what you're talking about, which, you know, could, you know, a a potential sort of um, 
epidemic of an infectious disease could wipe out far more people than any sort of, I think you wrote somewhere in an article, than any, you know, nuclear attack or terrorist attack as well. It certainly could be. It, well, it would it would surpass any any uh, terrorist attack. But if we just look at at the evidence of history, hundred years ago, in the f- final months of uh, World War One, we had a uh, an influenza pandemic that swept the world, infected a third of the people on the planet, and killed fifty to a hundred million people. Wow, we're just as much at risk today as we were 100 years ago, but for different reasons. Something like that hitting us today, though, would kill 200 to 400 million people and hit the global economy as bad as as the Great Recession of 2008. Yeah, it's not just lives, it's also livelihoods. Yeah, kind of gets me thinking, you know, people talk a lot about the merits of kind of living in like a hyper-connected world, like, you know, globalization, everyone's more connected online and that sort of thing. But we're also much more connected physically and there's no sort of, you know, physical barriers. So what does this kind of living in this hyper-connected world for you, what does this mean in terms of our ability to fight diseases effectively? How would this affect it in the future? Yeah, well, basically, I mean, we're, we're four times the population we were 100 years ago, twice as urbanized, uh, 50 times more, more mobile, and there's virtually no place on the planet that's more than 36 hours from any capital uh, by a combination of foot, canoe, bus, train, plane. Yeah. Um, you get pretty so, close in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> so, but so we, we simply have to say, look, we have created a world that is far more complex and far more interconnected than it was even 100 years ago. Therefore, we need to invest more in managing that world to manage the risks and to, to protect ourselves. We can't accept living in a more interconnected, complex world and just pretend we're all in log cabins by ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I guess I wanted, let's, uh, I'd love to bring our conversation sort of to Australia. Um, and in Australia, there's been a little bit in the news recently, there sort of seems to be more and more people jumping onto this sort of anti-vaccination bandwagon. Um, how do you think this will affect our ability as a society to sort of to fight against disease in the long term if more and more people aren't getting vaccinated? Yeah, this is this is a serious threat. It it actually goes back to the first vaccines 200 years ago, smallpox, where there was there were cartoons about it. So there's always been a kind of a worry on the part of people. One of the sources of the of the current concern is a 20 year old article by a guy named Andrew Wakefield, which launched the original vaccine autism myth. Yeah, I'm not familiar and, with that. <laughs> yes, and this in the UK, that article, which came out in 1998, plummeted the immunization rates for measles. It was driven down, the initial article had some impact, but when the sort of tabloid media got on it, that drove, as an ally of, of this, this, this article, uh, it drove down the rates even more. Mm-hmm. Then a really good investigative journalist did did a great piece to to unravel it and pull together the evidence that this was really quite a conflicted article and, and a very weak article. And then the mainstream press did a mea culpa because they realized what had happened and brought the rates back up. So UK <laughs> still has good immunization rates. Here's the thing. Every, every mother <laughs> wants the best for their child. It's the right thing to look for what will make my child healthier? The problem with this vaccine autism connection is that there's so much energy fighting the vaccine, 
rather than figuring out the real cause of autism. And so we have more autism than if we'd have found the cause and more uh, outbreaks. Mm -hmm. Europe now, this year, has has had 40,000 cases of measles because of the immunization problem. So two or three things. One is we need to be sure early on in schools that we that we teach about vaccines, Education about health and all that, that we recognize that people who hold dearly to a belief, and the evidence is clear on this, that something does something's a problem, like vaccines cause autism or they're not gonna give that up with more evidence. They're actually gonna hold on to that tighter. So you need people who are part of their community who have come to understand it, and then it's the messenger that's so important. Yeah. And, and that's what we saw with Ebola in West Africa. It was only when the market women and the traditional healers and others started getting the message out that people trusted it. Okay. So, so, so that's a part of it. It can't just be sort of a top-down. It has to be kind of bottom-up as well, involving Absolutely. civil society groups, yep. NGOs working in these spaces yep. as well. Yeah. And the other part of it, the other part of it is what we call empathetic listing understanding why people hold the beliefs and trying to understand what then we can we can do to help sort that out mm. and the final thing is the uh, the profession the the health professionals need to be much quicker at recognizing when, when the science has changed or when there there has been some bad science and recognize that and and be transparent about it and move on because mm. n- no field of endeavor is perfect. I just want to go back to the point you made about empathetic listening because I think that's interesting. I've been I've been reading up on sort of some of your um, articles recently and you speak a lot about fear as being one of the main obstacles. Um, in terms of sort of people being able to come up with adequate preparedness programs for infectious disease. Do you think that sort of training people in skills such as empathetic listening could help to counter like the fear that people feel about these issues? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, And part of that is understanding what they fear and then having your education really designed around that. Yeah. Uh, because people often fill in the blanks of the unknown with their worst possible fears. And so understand, that's why social media is a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, it really, really propels false beliefs, which often are more easily believed than the truth. Yeah. The other thing, though, is it helps you understand how people are misinformed and what ways they're misinformed. And therefore, as uh, we do now in epidemics, is look at social media and then tailor the messages according to what's going on in the social media sphere. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, we sort of, we speak about all this fake news environment and, you know, in other terms of like, you know, obviously with everything that's happening in the States where you're from and stuff like that, but we don't really think of how it affects people's perceptions in terms of these issues. Like, yeah, people sort of, you know, I like to think that I'm across sort of most issues, but I'm perhaps maybe a little bit guilty of having my head in the sand a little bit too with regards to infectious disease, the problems it can cause to society. Mm. So just a question to finish up for you, Jono. As someone who sort of, I guess, spends his days looking at doom and gloom scenarios, what is a scenario that would keep you up at night? Well, the the, the worst scenario is paradoxically <laughs> related to what most of us think is an annual irritant, which is the flu virus. Mm. And um, it, it does come around every year, but the flu virus is the biggest nightmare for epidemiologists. And the reason is that it travels in packs. It's not a single virus. It keeps changing. 
And uh, we have strains now in are very often coming out of China just because flu viruses develop out of interactions of the flu virus and the genes across pigs, chickens, waterfowl, and humans. The net result is there are bird flu strains now, right now, that have a 50 or 50 or 60% mortality rate, which is horrific. Those strains are so far haven't been contagious. They haven't spread from people to people. But the nightmare scenario is you have a flu virus like that that is highly deadly, highly contagious, with no immunity, no mm -hmm. inherent immunity, and no vaccine. That's the nightmare scenario. Sounds like a next Hollywood blockbuster. Yes. The good news <laughs> is, and there is good there news. There is good news, thank God. <laughs> it, it, is, it is, we are now, there are now several dozen efforts going on to worldwide to develop a so-called universal flu vaccine. Okay. A vaccine that will get most strains of flu and will get the part of the flu that is least changeable. And so I think there's hope there. In the meantime, we need to put confidence in good public health measures. We can protect ourselves and our children and our families with, with uh, good hygiene and basic measures that, that we can control ourselves. So interesting question for you, Jono, coming from a friend of mine who I work with. He's a big fan of the board game Pandemic. I've actually never heard of it, but what are your thoughts around this game? I think that anything that, that touches current culture and has a good uh, scientific basis behind it and raises awareness is great. So the board game pandemic is great. A couple weeks ago, University of Melbourne partnered with a local arts center to do something called Refuge 2018 Pandemic, where they mixed art and music and different media to get people aware, the community aware. Or the 2011 film Contagion, uh, yep. starring Gwyneth Paltrow, is very evidence-based, uh, so much so that they took great effort to uh, teach Gwyneth uh, Paltrow how to how to have a seizure when she was dying in the movie, not in real life, oh, when she was spoiler. dying, in a, in, in, in a realistic way. Um, and so I, I think those sort of science-based popular communication and engagement yeah. tools are really good. It comes back to what you were saying before about educating people from a young age. Yeah. Getting them aware of these issues. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing is, I want to put in a plug for an Australian innovation. Uh, there's an Australian, Hugh Evans, who started a global movement called Global Citizen. I've heard of that. This is, and you now have a, he's, he's gone international, so he's based now in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the Australian Global Citizen is started and based in Melbourne, but they have something like 25 million social media hits a month wow. with an organization whose aim is, is reducing extreme poverty, of which health improvements are one of the things. So I think there are ways, uh, particularly for the younger generations, to, to really get engaged in helping shape a world that's, that's more livable and, and safer mm. than, um, than we'd have if we just all sat back and let it happen. I suppose that's a good place to end it because that's ending on a little bit of hopeful news that there is something that we can do to mitigate against this. It's not all doom and gloom, so that's great. Thank you so much for joining me today, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you. And now you'll hear from Lisa Sharland on the sudden departure of UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. 
So thanks for joining me today, Lisa. Great to be here, Maddie. Awesome. So there was some big news coming out of the US overnight. Um, Nikki Haley has resigned as the US ambassador to the United Nations. Can you um, start by giving us a little bit of background on this? Certainly. So as you mentioned overnight, uh, there was a White House press conference uh, where Trump announced that Nikki Haley had advised him of her decision to resign and will be leaving the post at the end of the year in January 2019. Um, It's quite a notable announcement because Nikki Haley is one of the most high-profile women serving in Trump's cabinet. Mm. It's also notable that her position as UN ambassador has remained part of the cabinet, uh, which often hasn't been the case in Republican administrations. But it was actually a precondition that Haley set out when she took on the role, um, according to her resignation letter, which has now subsequently been made public. What was quite striking, I think, about the announcement was that unlike uh, firing or resignation of some other members of the cabinet, um, it was quite a measured uh, discussion that took place um, in the media today and it didn't appear to leak. People were quite surprised. Mm, Okay, that's got to be a first for the Trump campaign. Potentially. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Um, so why do you think this is has happened now? Like, I mean, I, I feel like every every morning I wake up and something new has happened with regards to the Trump administration. But, you know, you just said that this one came as quite a bit of a shock. You've got your hand more on the pulse in terms of what's going on over there. So why do you think this has happened? Look, that's a really good question. I mean, the first area of speculation that people have immediately jumped to is the the timing. Um, and there, there has been a lot of speculation since Haley took up that position um, about whether she was preparing herself to run for office in, in 2020, mm. um, namely by potentially challenging uh, Trump as the Republican nominee. So her role sort of as ambassador since the start of 2017 has really been seen um, by some as, or thinking at least, that it was going to be a stepping stone to higher office. It would give her the foreign policy experience that she didn't have as the governor of South Carolina for the six years prior to that. But she preempted herself in the press conference and, and said, I will surely not be a candidate for any office in 2020. So she's kind of ruled that out straight yeah, away. I think I saw an article on that. This yeah, from the beginning. So that's led a couple of people to question, well, maybe it's the long game that she's playing to 2024, 2024. or something like that. But she um, has also um, indicated, at least in, in the resignation, that she's looking to the private sector. So that would be sort of a challenging leap. But nonetheless, of course, we've seen that come about from Trump. So it's it's not without a predecessor. Look, a few other reasons have come up. It's it's a lot of speculation, you know. Um, uh, people have um, suggested that it might be a financial thing um, in terms of leaping into the private sector there. Okay. That's been in the news. There's been some news about ethics violations coming up under a bit of scrutiny recently. And then there's also been some speculation about roles of John Bolton and Mike Pompeo as changes in the administration, whether that's had any influence. So, look, the short answer is there's a <laughs> lot of different potential reasons there um, and it's left the door open for a lot of speculation. An article that I read this morning was people are speculating that Ivanka Trump might be slated as her replacement as well, but that's probably just fake news, as Trump would say. <laughs> well, I guess it goes into the mix of uh, speculation there. Yeah, no. So you um, you mentioned that there's sort of been a, a bit in the news about whether her resignation is uh, indicative of the fact that she might be running in 2024 or something. So um, I'd be interested, like, what are people's thoughts around, like, her record as UN ambassador? Like, is she seen as having done a good job? First of all, I think it kind of depends on where you sit on the political of course, spectrum um, yes, in terms yes. of multilateralism and, and the US's role in the world. Um, and look, she's still got a couple of months to, to serve out her term. And as anyone knows in, in the global sphere of things, particularly the UN, a lot can happen there. Look, expectations were high when she took on the office and, and she was unique in terms of a number of people that sort of came into the Trump administration and that, that she had positioned herself with some distance from Trump 
She'd mm. actually supported Marco Rubio in the Republican primaries and at times had been critical of Trump in the run-up to the presidential election. Particularly on Russia, right? Yeah, and, and that's one of the areas where she's been, um, some would say probably a little bit more forward um, in terms of the pronouncements, particularly around issues of Russian sanctions, yeah. uh, where Trump's positions have often been going back and forth on those issues. So you've seen a little bit more consistency there on on things such as Russia um, and, and she's been quite outspoken on that publicly as well. But look, in terms of engagement with the UN, she's aligned herself strongly with the Secretary General's uh, management reform agenda at the UN. Uh, she's taken real credit in terms of driving budget cuts, which has um, been met with some concern uh, by people across the UN, particularly in terms of driving those cuts at times when some peacekeeping missions, such as in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, have been under real pressure. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, I think that's fitted into the the narrative of um, appeal to a domestic constituency, Absolutely. which has kind of fueled those discussions around, you know, the, yeah. the political ambition side Bank of things. Bank of America argument sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, but, you know, what I think has been quite notable, and we've seen this happen particularly over the last 12 months, is that her positions largely on issues around Israel and Palestine, for instance, have very much fallen in with what the Trump administration approach has been. You know, we've had decisions to withdraw from the Human Rights Council. Which was huge, yeah. Anti-Israel bias was cited as one of the reasons there. Um, UNESCO is another area where the US has withdrawn, given that they've recognised Palestine. Um, And also the funding that has been cut to the UN Relief and Works Agency in Palestine. So um, you have seen situations where the US has been a little bit left out in the cold in, in some decisions in the Security Council, which... It's not uncommon on issues particularly around the Middle East at times, yeah, okay. um, but being quite pronounced, I think, um, from her from the perspective of her term. And there's been very much a mentality, I think, of, you know, this idea of you're either with us or, or against, against us. us. And I think that's, you know, something that's permeated across the um, administration to some extent, but it's it's been rhetoric that we've seen um, throughout her ambassadorship. But look... Nonetheless, today, if anyone's been looking at Twitter, you know, you have seen, you know, different messages of praise from various diplomats who've worked with her, which is not surprising given they're diplomats. Yeah. Um, but there is definitely a very mixed message. I think the the overriding concern is is who's going into the role next and are they going to be sort of someone that people can work with or somebody who's going to have um, very uh, views that are very antithetical to um, multilateralism and the yeah. UN generally. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm not going to ask you to put forward any names of who you think could take a position because we never know what could happen with the Trump administration. Thanks so much for speaking with me today, Lisa, and I, this is definitely a topic to sort of look at moving forward. I think so. We'll see what the announcement is in a few weeks and we'll be taking up that position at the um, horseshoe table in New York. And now let's hear from Danielle and Bart from our cyber team. Hi, Bart. How are you going? <laughs> Very well, Danielle. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. So what are we talking about today? Um, so today we're going to talk about what happened last week on 4th of October and the number of countries that came out and attributed Russia for malicious cyber attacks. So I'm going to throw to you. Uh, and ask us to talk us through what happened last week. Right. So what happened last week was that, in particular, the United Kingdom came out and uh, attributed a number of cyber attacks to the Russian state, uh, and in particular to the uh, GRU, which is the Russian Military Intelligence Agency. And this is, of course, not not the first incident. There has been a series of incidents where, in particular, the UK has been quite keen and quite vocal in calling out the Russian government, who has been behind a number of attacks which actually targeted the United Kingdom. So, of course, we had the um, NotPetya attack two years ago, uh, and this particular case actually revolves around the, uh, the Skripal poisoning, where the Russians tried to use their cyber tools to, um, to kind of disrupt the investigation. Yeah. 
And then, and at the same time, pretty much on the same day, the Australian government as well jumped on board and put out a media release that came, interestingly, through the Prime Minister's office, uh, and it was a sort of joint PM and Foreign Minister release that said, quote, today the Australian government has joined international partners to condemn a pattern of malicious cyber activity by Russia targeting political business media and sporting institutions worldwide. Down further on the media release, it did mention that while Australia was not significantly impacted, this activity affected the ability of the public in other parts of the world to go about their daily lives. So Australia was quite, you know, involved in this public attribution then. I spent some time uh, this morning looking on the Australian Cybersecurity Centre website. They have a new, great, quite sleek black website. I don't know if you know that. It was Mm -hmm. was quite impressive. Uh, to find out, okay, well, we've done a couple attributions this year uh, and where are they? And they're not easy to find. So this one was put on the DFAT Prime Minister and Foreign Minister website but wasn't on the Australian Cybersecurity Centre website, which I thought was very odd. Uh, there is no tab where you can go through and look at, okay, yeah, there needs to be like an yeah. attribution tab because you actually have to jump across Home Affairs Minister website, Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, DFAT, uh, the ACSC to pull together this picture of how are we publicly talking about uh, these big global cyber issues, uh, and it's certainly not easy. But I did sort of pull together a few bits and pieces, and this is, I think, the second or the third time that we've been involved in one of these groups of countries that yeah. th- that go forth and do these these big attributions, and Russia has been the main target for those. But I think that there's this, and I'd love your thoughts on this, but giant pink elephant in the room which is okay, we play this really strong away game and we and we talk about Russia and we talk about a lot of these issues which don't always impact Australia, but we don't seem to make public attributions at home in Australia involving our government departments and universities like the ANU hack. It's yeah. been, I think, over a year now um, since, well, it's been a few months since we discovered, but it's been alleged uh, by a number of national security officials who leaked to the media that yep. China was behind the ANU hack that went on for seven to nine months and we're still getting to the bottom of what happened. But it's interesting to me that we will make these big international attributions that don't that affect us less. They certainly yep. affect us, but, but a bit more indirectly. But uh, we don't make the attributions at home on malicious cyber behaviour that directly impacts Australia. I mean, and and I think you can see, let's say, what the UK has been doing in a few European countries by calling out the Russians so so explicitly, uh, and not just now, but also in the past. I mean, you've seen the the effects of that. I mean, so so diplomatic relations have come to a complete standstill. Um, There are economic sanctions, uh, in particular between the European Union, which the UK is, of course, yet still a member. The diplomatic dialogues between the Russian Federation and, and the UK and other European countries is, is very difficult at this moment. Yeah. So the effects of such a public attribution are quite significant. Yeah. Um, so do think, you think that's what's happening? Do you think we're avoiding making some types of attribution because oh yeah, of mean, the diplomatic fallout? I think so. I mean, I mean, in, in the end, it is a very political decision whether you attribute something publicly or not. Yeah. Um, and and I think at, we are at a stage where the relations, for example, between Australia and China, between America and China, is still, let's say, kind of constructive. Yeah. But with the Russians, it's not. And I think the the public attribution is kind of a sign that many governments are kind of fed up with the Russian government and how they engage in their diplomatic and political relations. Yeah. I've been thinking just about Australia then. Yeah. So what should our strategy? Be when it comes to this naming and shaming and public attribution. Well, I think I think the the tactic behind it, whether it's a strategy, I don't know yet. But I mean, whether it's a tactic, 
is to at least show other countries, potentially malicious actors, that Australia is prepared to publicly attribute. Mm. Um, and for the moment, Russia, which is kind of for Australia, kind of an easy, easy target, if you will, but at least show that, first of all, we have the capabilities and the political willingness in place to do it. So that when other malicious actors more in, in our region are, let's say, crossing a certain line, that Australia is able and willing to do that. Yeah. Um, whether that will make an impact, that's another question. Yeah. But, um, then, but then there's a footnote, right? So <laughs> well, I think what you said is exactly right. But then is the footnote, you know, and then you scroll down to the bottom and it says, but if there will be a diplomatic fallout... We might not call out oh, these yeah, actors, right? Absolutely. And even the, even the Brits, the Brits are pretty 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 straight about that. Is that yep. they they will not attribute everything that they encounter. Yeah, I think that really weakens your strategy, though. I mean, I think it's if you're going to play this, as I said, this strong away game, but then attribute very little at home. I mean, the other thing here, in, in particular, in this case, is that it that it is a, an intelligence activity, mm. um, which we're all doing. Yeah. Um, which the Brits, the Americans, and probably also the Australians are doing overseas. Yeah. So there is, I mean, if you call out them, then there is, of course, also the likelihood that that will blow back in your own face. Yeah. So, and 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 in fact, doing doing intelligence operations is nothing. There is nothing illegal about that. It's just a nuisance. And what you've been able to see, what the Russians did um, against the uh, OPCW, that's actually the, the case that um, where they tried to hack into the uh, chemical weapons organization and also tried to hack into um, some labs that were doing the, um, the, uh, the chemical, um, the research into the chemical substances regarding the Skripal case. Mm. The Russians just tried to find out what was happening there and maybe try to manipulate any data. That in itself is not a criminal offense from a from a military intelligence perspective. Mm. Um, so that's another, let's say, complicating factor that, that let's say, the act in itself is not per se illegal. Yeah. It's just a nuisance and it's not, let's say, the norm yeah. how states um, work with one another. And do you think we're going to see more of this sort of international naming and shaming going on? I think um, I think it's it's becoming more, and, and you've seen that Australia with the Five Eyes Five Eyes Partners is is trying to let's say initiate call it a norm or at mm. least a standard practice where a few countries come together and actually do this collective um, attribution. Yeah, and I think that's that's in a way a, a positive development that this is now slowly maturing. Yeah, um, what, what I the, really liked about what happened on 4th of October was that you actually saw some of our senior Australian officials that work on cyber issues out in the media. Yep. For, I mean, sometimes they're in the media, but it does seem like, in my opinion, not enough. Mm. So it was really good to see them, I thought, out speaking to, you know, TV stations uh, and speaking to radio and newspapers and actually playing an an, an informing role. Yep. uh, Because I think that too often we leave that just to politicians. Politicians are incredibly busy. Uh, They've got a whole, you know, bunch of different interests going on. And I think it's really good to see those very senior cyber officials from across departments going and actually speaking to the public. Yeah, that's right. I think it's a a sign to the Australian public that let's say the foreign affairs part of the house is working closely with the home affairs part of the house. Yep. Um, And I think um, uh, since, let's say, striking the right tone is so important in these kind of situations that you leave it to, let's say, the professionals being yeah. the, the, um, the head of the ACA, the Cybersecurity Centre or um, the, the Cyber Ambassador. But what's missing is a public attribution tab on the Australian Cybersecurity Centre website. It is indeed incredibly <laughs> difficult to find any data and the public releases. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, thank you for joining me for this chat. Hi, Daniel. 
Last Friday, the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Dr. Dennis McQuaggie and Nadia Murad for their efforts to end the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war and armed conflict. Jackie was fortunate enough to sit down and talk with Elizabeth Blackney, who is an informal advisor to Dr. Dennis McQuaggie. Well, today I'm joined by Elizabeth Blackney and I'm so grateful for her taking time out of her busy week to chat to me. Welcome to the podcast, Lizzie. Uh, thank you so much. So what does it mean to you that the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Dr. McQuaggie and Nadia Murad? You know, it's such an incredible moment, I think, just culturally in the United States and in Europe and around the world, there has been this explosion of focus on on sexual violence, date rape on campus, off campus, stranger rapes. There's been a lot of discussion about this. And for me, as, um, as a survivor, I've been a survivor for 29 years. I really can't quantify or explain just how much this means to me as just an individual who's not just as someone who's been working in this space for a very long time, but as someone who has lived with the stigma that sexual violence causes. And to see Nadia Murad, who is a sister survivor, who has been a champion for the women in her community, the Yazidi community in Iraq, has been so inspiring. She's so fearless and so selfless in trying to uplift the voices of other survivors. And uh, knowing and having worked with Dr. McLeagay, um, I've known him for about five years, and I worked for him for four. And he is such—he's um, such an inspiration. You know, they call him Doctor Miracle or the Man Who Mends Women. But to me, he's—you know—he's simply Papa, and he set my survivor soul free. So the statistics of the hospital say they've—they've uh, they've saved fifty-two thousand uh, survivors of sexualized violence. And I always say, make that fifty-two thousand and one. Well, thanks for that quick overview. And I actually would like to pick up on something you said in the end. Could you give us a couple of details on what the Pansy Hospital and the Pansy Foundation are doing and how that work contributes to the fight against the use of sexual violence and conflict? Oh, sure. So uh, for years, I worked with uh, with Dr. McWege, um, both with their Bukavu team, but primarily with their U.S. team. Uh, the Pansy Foundation USA was co-founded by Dr. McWege and Dr. Leanne Jerus and Peter France about eight years ago or so, uh, 10 years actually. And they've done, you know, it was founded about 10 years ago. Leanne and Peter and Dr. McWege really dedicated themselves to just being a pass-through at first and then quickly realized that we just needed so much more capacity. And they brought in an incredible woman named Nama Haviv, who was the first full-time executive director. They raised money for the hospital. They raised money that, that does psychosocial care, everything in the four pillars. So you have medical, psychosocial care, you have community reintegration services, legal aid, education, and all kinds of psychosocial therapies. They have a globally renowned music therapy program with a Canadian partner, Darcy Adaman from Make Music Matter, that just transforms the, the trauma into something that is an experience that is then owned by the survivor. They write, produce, compose, and perform their own music with their own lyrics and then they own they own that. It becomes a bit of an income stream, but also just a way to share their experiences through art, which we know there's a lot of studies out there that show that that psychosocial 
you know, the trauma is really helped released by these art therapies and music therapies and things that help to release trauma from the brain. And so Pansy Foundation USA does that work. They certainly support the overall mission to help end sexual violence as a weapon of war. And they partner with the McQuaggy Foundation, which is housed out of The Hague and in Geneva, that's led by Esther Dengemans, who is an absolutely brilliant genius of a woman who is much like Dr. McLeague, just a fearless defender of survivors and seeking uh, reparations and and a better path forward for survivors from all walks of life on all continents. It's such, so fascinating to hear about this work and you would wish that people know more about it and I think awarding the Nobel Peace Prize to Dr. McQuaggy helps doing that and creating more awareness of what he actually does and how important his work is. Moving on to a bit of a bigger picture, what do you think can international stakeholders do better to end impunity to sexual violence as a weapon of war, seeing we also celebrate the 10-year anniversary of United Nations Security Council Resolution 1820 that actually condemns the use of sexual violence as a tool of war? You know, it's really an important time for this discussion. Um, the up and down, you know, there's the, the overarching international picture, but then there's also the in-country pictures of major stakeholders. So if you look at the United States uh, individual policy or the fact that like in Italy, where uh, if a woman is wearing jeans, it's not considered rape. And uh, and that a similar law was on the books until just a year or two ago in France. Um, you know, how each individual nation that sits on the UN Security Council or is a, you know, a G20 nation, how they approach sexual violence in their own country is really an indicator of what you're going to see at the UN. It's all very nice and you know, well and good if countries get together to pass these resolutions. But you can really see what their commitments are by looking how they treat victims of sexualized violence in their own nations. And so I really feel it's important for folks like this is why, you know, in the United States, we're 28 days away from a, um, a big midterm election. If you're an American citizen, now's your moment to get on it and and ensure that you have leaders that are, you know, when you have an opportunity, you know, in nations where we freely elect, you know, democratically elect our leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to be informed as voters to help change and shape these international policies. Because when they get together for UNGA week, which is the UN General Assembly week in New York, or they get together at the European Council, uh, at the Bundestag, or in, um, or in Strasbourg, all of us have a part to play. It doesn't, um, I think that having Dr. McWege win this Nobel Peace Prize is just a stark reminder of how important the nation states are. And if you look at what he has been able to accomplish in the face of so much violence and so much pressure from the Kabila government, uh, which is holding on to power well past their constitutionally, um, you know, well past the mandated date of departure by the Congolese constitution. Uh, it is really quite remarkable. And, you know, fingers crossed that Congo now in this focus will, in fact, hold free, fair and credible elections on December 23rd. So I think I will close on one last question in regards to the Me Too movement. So what signal do you think the award of the Nobel Peace Prize sends as we mark the one year anniversary of the Me Too movement? This is such a painful moment, I think, for women generally. You know, we're half the population uh, in most communities and the Me Too movement, you know, it's been a year um, and I don't know that we're really any farther. Like Dr. McGuigay won the Nobel Prize just hours before the United States Senate confirmed Brett Kavanaugh 
who was credibly accused of sexually assaulting a young girl when he was also in high school. She was 15, he was 17. There's, uh, it was a stark reminder there's a long way to go. There's also a reminder that, you know, that the United States is not always going to set the gold standard. It's important to me as an American woman to ensure that my government knows that I am not happy about that, but also to look at our international partners and people like the Nobel Committee. Committee, everyone says, oh, well, they're so political. Yeah, they are. Good. You know, I don't have to agree to them, but at least they took a stand on sexual violence. Uh, no woman should have to face the the stigma, the shame, the um, the economic opportunities disappearing because she stands for what is right. And the scrutiny on organizations that stand in in the way of of advancement or the scrutiny on individuals who are using survivors dignity for their own purposes is really an important nuanced discussion and i hope that as the me too movement goes on that we get into some of that nuanced fabric of this discussion thank you so much for sharing your opinions and your insights and especially letting us know a bit more about the work of dr mcquaggy thank you so much jackie and thanks to everyone Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll have a special counterterrorism-themed episode of Policy, Guns and Money with former UK Police Commissioner Sir Paul Stevenson.